So the reading today is the whole of 2 Timothy chapter 3. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, Patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, good morning and hello to you in the back row. I sat out there last night and I didn't realize how far away that is. Um, <laughs> So can you actually hear back there? Yes, all right. Well, that's reassuring. Well, I hope we're beginning to get the picture that uh, Paul's great concern in writing this letter is that just as he recognizes his race is almost run, so that Timothy will also finish the race. And he's such a good guide and tutor to Timothy that he is concerned that he will not be caught off guard by the things that he will encounter. 
And so, in many ways here, as he gets to what is for us the third chapter, he is laying out for him uh, the nature of the challenges that he faces. And as we said yesterday, any good leader knows the importance of delegation. And in delegating, it is important to prepare uh, the one who is uh, taking up the charge. And uh, some of you are doctors, and you know how important it is to help those of us who are patients to be prepared for what lies ahead. I was in Glasgow uh, up in Kelvin Grove on Sunday, as it turned out, and we drove past a place that I had remembered uh, visiting a doctor there. And I only remember, well, I remember a couple of things, but I remember what he said to me. He said, if you can survive the next 40 seconds, it will be plain sailing from there. So I said, okay, that's good. I, I think I can do 40 seconds. I did, but anyway, yeah, that's why I remember it. <laughs> in, the, in the same way, pilots on planes, some of them don't say a thing, and uh, they leave you just to wonder about what, what's going to happen. Some of them, and they're good, I think, on British Airways, and there's something about that English accent that at least it reassures me a little bit. And uh, they usually say things like, you know, it, it will be a little bumpy on the climb, but it should settle out. That should is very, very important. I was coming across here a couple of months ago, and as we left uh, Washington, uh, the chap said, you know, it looks like it's going to be a very uh, pleasant flight. He said, uh, we do cross the airstream on a couple of occasions. That's all he said. So I made a note. I wonder what that's like, because you can't see it. It's clear air turbulence. And then just as I thought I was falling asleep, we crossed it. And if you know some of your pilots, you know that crossing the jet stream is strong enough in places to cause an airplane to drop as much as 30 meters. And I'm sure we didn't go down that far, but it was enough to say, aha, that is what you were referring to. Thank you for letting me know. Because I don't want them to be surprised. I mean, I don't want to hear them going, whoa, what happened there? <laughs> Goodness gracious. Pilots running back and forth, going to the bathroom. Unbelievable. <laughs> no, so that's what he's doing here. Look at the opening phrase, but understand this. Don't be naive, Timothy. There are difficult times ahead. You might as well know that, Timothy, uh, that there are going to be seasons throughout the last days where living for Jesus will be particularly challenging. If you like, in the turbulence, it's going to be important for you to fly the instruments. If you try and operate on the basis of your feelings, uh, you will be a danger to yourself and you will be a danger to those under your care. And so he wants him to think correctly. Remember, we saw that he said, if you think about this, the Lord will give you insight. And now once again, he's calling him to use his mind. Understand this. What? These times of difficulty in the last days. Now that little phrase in the last days is enough to cause us to be reminded of the 14th verse from yesterday, where Paul says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. And one of the words that I've found people love to quarrel about, well, one of them is the rapture. That's two words I know. The other is the millennium. And if you want to uh, stir up a hornet's nest, then all get together, have a coffee, and uh, tell everybody what you think you know about when the last days are. In order to prevent that happening, let me just remind you of what the Bible says about the last days. 
that the last days were ushered in with the coming of the Lord Jesus. We read from Hebrews chapter 1, didn't we? Many in various ways of old, but in these last days, when Peter preaches on Pentecost and folks are making all kinds of assessments as to what's going on, Peter says, no, you need to understand. If you would read your Bible, you would understand that this is what Joel was talking about in the last days these things would happen. Now, clearly, there will be last days to the last days. But the point that is made here is essentially that there is a timelessness about these seasons of difficulty, that no believers actually will live their lives exempt from the difficulties that will inevitably come as a result of hostility to the truth of the gospel. And in between the comings of Jesus, his followers are going to face grievous, fierce, difficult times. The word that is used here uh, is is an uncommon word. It is a word that you find actually in the the story that uh, Jonathan just referenced when he talked about uh, the demons being cast into the pigs. And in that section there in Matthew chapter 8, the two demon-possessed men were so fierce that nobody could pass by them. It is that sense of animosity, fierce difficulty that is referenced here. Now, what he goes on to point out is that people are the problem. People are the problem. And so you come to this section that doesn't make very pleasant reading, does it? For people will be. Now, we could spend all the morning on this, and we're not going to. But if you look at the opening phrase and the closing phrase, uh, which comes at the end of four, you see that this unsavory catalog of things is contained within these two end points. On the one hand, people will be lovers of self. On the other hand, rather than lovers of God. And that is the context in which he then says, here are some of the characteristics of a place, of a time, of a people, of a society where these two factors are prevalent. Because you see, self-love, the love of self, is the opposite of all that God intended for us. It is to love ourselves, to love us as creatures rather than God as the creator. He made us for himself, for Uh, so that we might, in the words of the Shorter Catechism, glorify him and enjoy him forever. But instead, we've decided that we should glorify ourselves. I was in a bookstore in suburban Cleveland just a couple of weeks ago. I was looking for something else, and as I came to the checkout, uh, there were opportunities to have um, daily journals. And I'm sure you can't see this, but I took a photograph of it. I wasn't going to buy it. I see that you have a Scotsman as the treasurer, so it's very good. Uh, (laughs) It it simply says, I totally got this. I totally got this. A journal to remind myself that I am truly awesome and capable. This is not not even funny. This is is tragedy. This is too Timothy. Lovers of themselves. And I'm seriously going to nail it, no matter what it is. And no matter how much I secretly doubt myself, if you don't like that one, you can have this one. I'm kind of awesome. A journal to celebrate the glory that is me, myself, and I. 
Because really, what is there for me to lose, not only by believing in myself, but by spreading my plumage and letting everybody know who I am? What a fascinating generation we live in. This is the generation that has given us the selfie, the selfie of all things. And some of you are into it. You keep coming, <laughs> you keep coming up to me. Yeah. You haven't met anyone unless you have a photograph with them. When did this happen? Well, oh, you say, don't be rude. Well, I'm not trying to be rude. I mean, I know they just amazing discovery in the art world with another self-portrait of Van Gogh hidden behind another painting. Quite fascinating. So Van Gogh and Rembrandt, they were into selfies, but not in the way that we are. The journalists actually pick up on this, uh, writing in the New York Times, Jenna Weston says, these selfies are an attempt to mark our short existence and hold it up to others as proof that we are here. And more so, Alicia Eller observes, this is narcissism at its worst, where we become our own biggest fans and private paparazzi. So there we can secure it, then we can disperse it, then we can send it out so that everybody may know exactly where I am at this particular moment in time and that uh, they will be thoroughly impressed by it. It's interesting, isn't it? You see, the self, the self is really the place of worship today. That's what Paul is saying here. People will actually worship themselves. And it will be along these lines. I have the right as an individual to define who I am, what I am, and what I want to be. Or I have a right to be happy in my own way and in my own terms. And the gender discussions, we'll call them discussions for now, emanate from that essential love of self. And I don't know whether you are recognizing this, and I certainly don't want to overstate it, but it seems to me that the challenge to the believability of the Bible, the challenge to the doctrine of Scripture that comes in this generation is a challenge that is worked along the lines of human sexuality. The Bible cannot possibly be true because, after all, look at what it says about this. But this hasn't always been the case. I went back to check, and I discovered that in 1988, Parliament here in the United Kingdom passed a law banning schools from teaching, quotes, the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. Section 28 of the bill outlawed positive depictions of same-sex relationships in classrooms. Section 28, 12 years later, was repealed. That was 2000. 2005, gay and lesbian couples were allowed to adopt in England and Wales. 2013, same-sex marriage was legalized. And suddenly, within a quarter of a century, our nation has lived through an immoral revolution. And we now stand at the very threshold of all that is before us. And Jonathan is right. 
We're either going to bow our knees to the sufficient authority and timelessness of the Bible, or we will be swept away by that which comes to us, not simply from a secular culture, but from a clergy that has now themselves lost confidence in the Bible. And at the time... This is not America. Uh, and, I, and I like the fact. At a time when our world is most aware of its brokenness and its need, which is to be answered in an unerring gospel message, those who are the proclaimers of the gospel message have lost confidence in the message. Understand this, Timothy. There will be times of difficulty. People will be in love with themselves. Acquisitiveness, the love of money, an assertive disregard for other people, proud, arrogant, abusive, displayed in family life, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, lacking in natural affection. And when these times of difficulty emerge, and when they take hold, there will be within that environment a glaring, disturbing absence of gratitude, of respect, of affection, of reasonableness. And the vacuum will be filled, just read your Bibles, the, the vacuum will be filled by brutality, recklessness, and unbridled conceit. Brutality, recklessness, unbridled conceit. I didn't do this because I don't have a newspaper this morning, but if I'd had time and got up early enough, then I would have taken today's newspaper and I would have just taken a magic marker and I would have, I would have underlined all the characteristics that are represented here in 2 Timothy 2 that are presented to us as expressions of a culture that has said no to God and has said yes to itself. The inevitable results of that decline are absolutely clear for anybody who's thinking. Now, obviously, it's not the complete picture, because if it was, this would be hell on earth. But the grace of God holds back these tides of wickedness, and the same grace of God that holds back those tides is the same grace that is entrusted to us to be a part of penetrating those tides lovingly, clearly, decisively, unashamedly. I don't think it is possible for somebody who is really thinking that you meet along the way to say anything other than the fact of our world, it would seem, at least in Western culture, is just broken. It's broken. Whether you want to think about it politically or familiarly or sexually or whatever you want to talk about, it's not difficult for people to say, you know, I don't know what happened. It's like the whole thing turned upside down. It capsized. Well, of course, we know why. God made everything beautiful and perfect, and one day a new heaven and a new earth. But right now, it's a broken world. You know, Bob Dylan is in, in his early 80s, and he's, he's, he's heading this way. Did you know? Get your tickets now. Um, 
He's doing nine concerts. I think he's doing two of them in Glasgow. Uh, some people like him, some people don't. I'm not sure he's my favorite poet. And when he wrote this particular song, I don't think he was having his best day. The song is called Everything is Broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, bro broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Ain't no use jiving. Ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. It's broken. Look at the educational system. From 1988, when you couldn't do that in a school, to today in Scotland, in those same schools, what in the world happened? Where was the church in the middle of this? Where is the church? Times of difficulty? Are we all going to run away and hide? Hide our light under a bushel? Not a call to be obnoxious. It's a call to be clear. And what is staggering, and we mustn't miss this, is that Paul actually is not talking supremely about a secular environment that is pressing in, but he's talking about a professed religious establishment that is losing its focus. Verse 5, you see, these people have an appearance of godliness. Spirituality is in vogue, but they actually deny its power. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And he actually describes them, not in very flattering terms, does he? They are detestable. Of course, he had warned them of this, hadn't he? He wrote, uh, or Luke records it for us in, in 20 of Acts, from among your own selves will arise fierce wolves who will draw away disciples after them. And that is, of course, what we observe as history goes by. It's a long time since Spurgeon was concerned about the downgrade controversy, which was about the authority of the Bible. But there is hardly a month passes without some dimension of professed, organized religion and expressly in cases evangelical Christianity where the chaos and the brokenness from within it is not obvious to anyone who can see. In the States at the moment, the Southern Baptist denomination, which, would, which is the largest denomination in the English-speaking world, is under the watchful eye of uh, all kinds of investigations because of the number of clergy involved in sexual sin. 700 victims at the moment have brought their material before this board. Grievous and perilous times. And as John Lennon said, one thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. I don't care whether you wear your collar backwards. I don't care whether you wear a special hat. I don't care if you carry a huge, big Thompson Chain reference Bible. There's one thing you can't hide. And that's why Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you see, you better watch your life and you better watch your doctrine carefully because I am going and you are staying and you must make sure that you're serious about these things. Now, I don't think we should imagine that these people were like ogres. The devil doesn't come around with those pointed things and a big pitchfork. No, these were people who were probably living fairly successful lives, but they were denying the power that they proclaimed. Probably slick, attractive. In contemporary terms, they would have television or radio programs. They would be able to gather a great crowd. 
Timothy, he says, I want you to make sure that you speak straight concerning this. Let me give it to you straight in a phrase, avoid such people. Avoid such people. Don't elect them to office. Don't give them bishops' roles. Avoid them. Internal hypocrisy. In the history of mankind, wrote Stott in 73, in the history of mankind, although it is a shameful thing to admit, religion and morality have been more often divorced than married. And he goes on to point out that the strategy of these individuals, many of them very attractive, I'm sure, among that group, some of them had become adept at targeting a certain kind of woman. It's very, very important we understand that. Paul's letters contain frequent references to the women who were part and parcel of the ministry that he was privileged to exercise. In fact, when he writes to Timothy in his first letter, he is very concerned that Timothy understands how to deal with women who will be in the framework of his, of his care. And you remember, he says to him, you should treat the younger women as sisters, and you should treat the older women as mothers, so that you might deal with them and treat them only thinking pure thoughts about them. It's wonderfully realistic, isn't it? If I treat people the way I treat my sisters, I love my sisters. But, you know, I, and every time I, I, you know, I kiss them every so often, I don't see them very much, but there's nothing much to it, you know. That's the way it's supposed to be. I tell the fellows on my pastoral team, if you have a lady who is coming to see you from our congregation and you're looking forward to it, and it's not your wife or one of your girls, daughters, then have one of the other guys see her. Oh, you say you're very silly. No, I'm not. Now, what he's pointing out here is that in the context of his day, there were those, as in our day, who are burdened, they're bewildered, they're bewitched. In our context, I see them driving their cars. Uh, they have just come from yoga. They have crystals hanging from their uh, wing, uh, from their uh, rearview mirror. Uh, they have signs on the back that, that you couldn't, if you, if you put them all together, you couldn't form any meaningful conclusion. And, and you, I just look at them and go, I said, you know, this person is so vulnerable to anyone who comes along with a big story. Therefore, we want to say to our ladies in the congregation, make sure, because these are your friends, make sure you get the opportunity to tell them the real story. They're vulnerable. They're susceptible to this kind of approach. Attractive people, smooth-talking people. Satan's strategy never changes. In the garden to Eve, it was deceit. And in the average household, it remains the same. Well, this is tough going, is it not? I can see looking at some of you. You're like, wow, is this really in the Bible? Well, that's why you have your Bibles open, I hope. That's why it's called the Bible reading. I'm trying just to say what, I'm, what I see there. These weak women and bad men creeping into places. And this picture reminds Paul, as a Jewish fellow who had grown up with an understanding of uh, the ways of God in the past, it reminds him of an incident from Exodus chapter 7, which you can read for your homework. Janus and Jambres, they opposed Moses. 
And he says, you know, they opposed Moses. They tampered with the word of Moses. And they actually are opposing me. And they're tampering with the word which I am proclaiming, which is uh, the word of the gospel. They oppose the truth. They're corrupted in their minds. They are disqualified regarding the faith. They have no business doing what they're doing. They will not get very far because eventually the penny will drop for people. They use terminology that is biblical. They distort its meaning. Now, it's it's impossible not to realize just the very forcefulness of the apostle in this. This is not about a personality conflict. This is not about somebody that he doesn't like a certain group of people and so he's targeting them. No, he's speaking about something far more significant. He's speaking about the fact that his demise and the transfer to Timothy is the very pivoting point of the apostolic and the post-apostolic church. People would have every right of saying, I wonder if there will even be a church, which is actually what I hear people saying now in Scotland. If the national church goes away, will the whole church go away? Well, of course, we know the answer to that. It won't. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But from a human perspective, it looks as though Christianity is losing about 10 nil, and we're only about seven minutes into the game. No. Paul never pulled his punches on this. Acts 13 is another homework passage for you. Luke tells us that he was on Cyprus. He had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the proconsul. And there was a fellow there who was a rascal. His name was Elymas, which actually means magician, and he was a magician. And the magician uh, began to oppose uh, Paul and his message, and he tried expressly to turn the proconsul away from the faith, to swerve him in another direction. And if you read there, you will find that Paul's response was quite surprising. He decided to form an ecclesiastical commission to discuss what we should do about the people who are opposing the gospel. And he sent out a little tweet. Uh, Come, come, Elymas, try and be a sensible soul. I can tell you've never read Acts 13. Some of you are thinking, oh, he really said that? I can't believe it. (laughs) No, no, that's why I said homework. This is what he said. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's very forceful, is it not? And I don't suggest that you or I should make any attempt at it. Not in your town. Don't uh, find somebody that uh, you think may fit the category and uh, Uh, give him a a dose of Acts chapter 13. This is an apostolic response to an event that is crucial in the unfolding story of the gospel. But nevertheless, and let's not miss the point, the same fellow who says to Timothy, avoid these people, is the one who spoke so directly. Once again, Paul is not calling Timothy to an approach to life and ministry that he himself has not been committed to. And so it's important that they understand that, that Timothy and those under his care realize that these people will not in the end get very far. They'll they'll have a day in the sun again. We see that as we get to verse 13, but eventually they'll be gone. And just go to secondhand bookshops and you'll find that many of the things that were the great threats in the past uh, have, have gone. 
Some of them linger like a few leaves on a tree in winter. And the hardest ones to detect are those who are pastors of well-heeled congregations, some of them in America, using the language of the Bible, but never themselves bowing to its authority and its truth. The problem is bad men, weak women, but we have a sovereign Lord. And we remind ourselves that God is not threatened by counterfeits. Luther, who himself was pretty adept at taking on a challenge and saying it straightforwardly, in fact, sometimes a wee bit too straightforwardly, you can only imagine what he would have been like if he didn't have his friend Melanchthon holding his shirt tail all the time going, oh, Martin, don't say that, don't say that. And then I'll try and cover for you. You said it again. But he was in the, he was the, the height of the battle. He would have read Second Timothy and said, this is a difficult time. This fits. And so he gives us his great hymn. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We shall not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Timothy, understand this. Timothy, fly the instruments in the face of the turbulence. And remember that this teaching is the teaching that came from my lips and from my pen, and it is the teaching that is backed up by my life. That's verse 10. This, of course, is the great challenge, isn't it? Because so often, for many of us who have now been entrusted with the privileges of pastoral ministry, we have led ourselves, the Lord, and others down on the occasions where our life has actually contradicted our preaching. And sometimes, out of the mouths of babes, you know, we get this reproof. I've been driving anonymously, at least I hope I have, down this roadway here and trying not to pass people from the convention lest I do what I'm talking about. And I've been known on the odd occasion to drive in the car and make comments on people's driving like, what is this idiot doing right now? And uh, (laughs) don't, don't you realize it's not possible to turn from here and we'll be here for the rest of our lives. And on one occasion, after I'd gone through a, a, a string of this sort of Um, material, in the silence that followed, a little voice from the back of the car, which was my son at that time, he said, and that's another kind word from your pastor. (laughs) It was true. But now, Paul, look at this. You, however, have followed my teaching. He goes through the whole thing, my conduct, my aim in life, and so on. You can read it for yourself. He's not blowing his horn. He, he knew how to uh, uh, toot his horn. He, he tells us that when he writes to the Philippians, he was very, very proud of his background and his education and his upbringing and so on. But that when he met Jesus, although he had reason to be grateful for all of that. His identity was no longer wrapped up in that. It was now wrapped up in who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for him. And everything that he is able then to do from that point onwards in his conduct, in his his purpose in life, his faith, patience, love, and so on, are evidences of all of that. And so he urges Timothy to recognize that Timothy then could poke into Paul's life, the evidences that were found, not simply in hearing him as he spoke from the pulpit, as it were, 
but in driving with him in the car, in being with him in privacy, and so on. His teaching, his conduct, his purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, his sanctified behavior. All of these things, you see, are objective, observable aspects of Paul's integrity. What he's really able to say is there are no hidden territories in my life. In contemporary terms, he could say you can have my tax returns. Or I, I can give you my phone for the afternoon. You can have my laptop. You can go through it all. That's what he's saying. A life of integrity. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians, what we quoted yesterday, I think it was, where he says, you know, uh, I don't care if I'm judged by you or by any human court. My conscience is clear. That doesn't make me innocent. Because he recognizes that the all-seeing gaze of God searches the very innermost parts of his being. And I don't care if you're in an accountability group. Because if you'll lie to God and lie to yourself, you'll lie to your accountability group. It is in the secret privacy of our own lives and in Paul's life, which he was able to open up to Timothy and say, Timothy, you know this. You know that I am not one of those fellows that I was referencing who has a form of godliness but denies its power. You've been with me, Timothy, you know. And the reason I'm reminding you of this is, Timothy, I see it in you, son, and I want you to be this man in the days that lie ahead. And so Timothy was able to say, yeah, I know. I know all of that. And he actually identifies it. He says, you know about my persecutions and my sufferings and all the things that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured and from which the Lord rescued me. Well, of course, you, we've got it all. You just uh, can read. In, in Antioch, he escaped before they stoned him. In Iconium, Acts 14, they actually stoned him. They dragged him out of the city and they left him for dead. And in uh, uh, Lystra, in, in Iconium, they stoned him. And in Lystra, uh, they stoned him too. And he was dragged out and left for dead. <laughs> it's pretty hard to preach the prosperity gospel out of that, isn't it? <laughs> you know, uh, the key to successful Christian living is that you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, what in the world happened to you, Paul? Seems to me that you've got it completely upside down. And, and when you want to testify to uh, the, the evidences of God's grace, you, t- you remind us of these dreadful things. But he says, you know, this is not unique to me. Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted one way or another. Again, I think this is something that we're going to have to lay hold on because now we are definitely in, in aliens and strangers. Now we live in a foreign place. Now we're like the Jews in the exile. Now we're going to have to find out what it is to be the bad people, how to be very good bad people in the minds of people living in a culture that doesn't like anybody to live for Jesus. And one of the things we need to recognize is that the things that are supposed to incur people's animosity are not bad features of our lives, our judgmentalism, our political preoccupations or whatever that might be. No, but rather the sense of otherworldly godliness that is prepared to meet and greet people where they are and start where they are. But 
John, when he writes, the apostle of love, he writes to his folks. He says, do not be surprised that the world hates you. Jesus said that. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hates you. Now, by and large, I have lived my life reading stuff like that and saying, well, that explains North Korea, or that explains China in the Cultural Revolution, or that explains this and that and so on. In other words, I need to read either a geography book or a history book to try and contextualize it, but not anymore. Not anymore. And none of us like to be hated. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. And whatsoever he does prospers. The wicked are not so. Who are the wicked? We are the wicked by nature, apart from the redeeming grace of God. The wicked are not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This is of eternal life and death significance. I saw a picture for the National Health in Gifnock the other day on the side of a bus. It was a very cheery-looking nurse. And she said, we are looking for the ones who are helpful. Well, Christians ought to be at the forefront of that charge, don't you think? Adopting children that are rejected. Not simply crowing about the nature of abortion, but doing something in relationship to it. And even when we do these things, Jesus says, don't be surprised. And actually, we'll look as though Christians are facing the very worst. And uh, yet, what he says is that the people who are going from bad to worse will go from bad to worse. They are deceiving people, and they are simultaneously being deceived. But as for you, and he does this all the time, doesn't he? You, however, but as for you. He says, I want you to continue. When all the innovators arrive, claiming to be the future, and it happens all the time, the wave of the future for the church. I've lived through many of them, uh, the seeker-sensitive movement that was going to be the key to the future, uh, the purpose-driven church. If you're not doing that, you're nowhere. If you haven't barked like a dog in the Toronto Blessing, there's no hope for you. If you're not a member of the emerging church or the hybrid church or whatever the church is called, then frankly, you should fold it up and go home because this is where it's all going. And guess what? It has all virtually gone. And we've got faithful men in parishes, remote areas of the highlands of Scotland and throughout Wales and into Ireland and on. Faithful men who are simply saying day by day, this is the Word of God. Listen to this. Listen to this. Here is the best news the world has ever heard. And God honors such faithfulness. And if we read history and we think about 19th century England, was it 19th century? Check. 
But the darkness of the place then, people would have said, oh, goodness gracious, there's no way back from this. And then a lady had a baby, Mrs. Wesley. And then another lady had a baby, Mrs. Whitfield. Two baby boys. And the rest is history. Pray for the youngsters in these places here. What a joy to see these children running around, singing the songs. What an unsought privilege to be amongst the teenagers last night as they tried to humiliate me as best they could. (laughs) And it wasn't difficult for them, I guarantee you. No, he says, listen, Timothy, just continue in what you've learned. Just stay the course. Just put one foot in front of the other. Just don't deviate. Don't swerve. You know the basics. You were grounded in the basics. And he says two things. He says, you know, because remember who taught it to you. Well, who taught it to him? Well, most recently, Paul taught it to him. But in his younger years, his mom taught it to him and his grandmother. Devout Israelite parents taught their children to obey the commands of God. I, 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 was, I had never noticed this in Genesis chapter 18, where you have this great declaration of God concerning Abraham. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. We quote that all the time. I, I never really paid attention to what it goes on to say in the 19th verse. We'll be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Give heed to your father's instruction and don't neglect your mother's teaching. The Shema, these words are to be upon your hearts. You teach them to your children when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Who can quantify the benefit of a Christian home and upbringing? Who will ever quantify the benefits of a granny that prayed for us? And a mom that wasn't prepared to take our stupid nonsense when we said, no, we're not going there. We don't like that. None of our friends go there. And she said, sit down and be quiet. You're going. I mean, I got thrown out of Sunday school for people who were doing bad things who were non-Christian boys because they knew that my father would send me back the next week. But if they threw out the non-Christian boys, they may never come back. So I was like a scapegoat for the whole operation. (laughs) And, And of course, I would never have been one of the boys doing anything that would get you thrown out. Yeah. When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise, unnumbered comforts to my soul, thy tender care bestowed, before my infant heart conceived from whom those comforts When in the slippery paths of youth, with heedless steps I ran, thy hand unseen conveyed me safe and brought me up to man. Some of you have the same testimony, don't you? And you now are in the same position as myself. And you're saying to yourself, I think my future is in Psalm 71. And verses 17 and 18. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power 
to those who are to come. You've got a whole bunch of people in America, but they don't like the winters in Ohio, so they go and they fossilize down in Florida. The Floridian fossils, I call them. They don't like it when I say that, but, and I shouldn't say it, but I said it anyway. <laughs> but I, I, I need those people. I don't want them to go down there and play golf for the rest of their lives. There's an entire Ohio to reach with the gospel. You can go for a wee while, but you must come back. Somebody told you the scriptures, now you have a responsibility to tell someone else. That's what he's saying. You know those who taught you, and you know also the scriptures. He refers to them as the sacred writings. From childhood, you've been acquainted with this, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book that is there so that people might know that salvation belongs to the Lord. The Bible tell, doesn't tell us everything about everything. You can't go in a chapter in you know, in the Old Testament and find out how to fix your Wi-Fi. You can go in the Bible and find out the difference, the distance from Keswick to Cairo. But everything that you need for life and for godliness is contained there, the Westminster Confession. Number 1.7. Not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear to all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly stated and explained in one place or another in Scripture that not only the educated, but also the uneducated may gain a sufficient understanding of them by a proper use of the ordinary means. The ordinary means being sitting under the instruction of the Scriptures and reading the Scriptures for ourselves. Well, in verse 16, a verse that is often preached on its own, which will not be done now as we come to the end, uh, clearly, uh, Paul is not informing Timothy of the inerrancy of the Bible. What he's actually going on to do, as we'll see tomorrow, God willing, is to preach the Bible. And so before he gives him his marching orders, he reminds him of what he actually knows, that this has been breathed out by God. It wasn't an existing um, source of material into which God breathed. Rather, in this strange duality or dual authorship, God breathed concurrence in theological terms, which we understand, for example, in the doctrine of providence, some of which we considered last evening. So Joseph and his brothers, he says to them, you meant it for evil. They were 100% involved in the animosity, but God in intended it for good. He was 100% involved in putting Joseph in the place. It wasn't a 50-50 split, and it isn't a 50-50 split in the Bible. God is 100% engaged in breathing out his word, and the writers of Scripture are 100% involved as they put pen to paper. Let me say just a couple of things because our time is gone. The authority of Scripture, the authority of Scripture is the way that people come to an understanding of Scripture. When Scripture is not offered to people as, here's a few ideas, see what you think you can do with this, but rather that it is offered as the pastor is standing underneath the Scriptures and is saying, let's look together and see what God is saying to us. Let's, let's allow the Bible to preach to us. And only by Scripture itself is the authority of Scripture ever understood. As the Holy Spirit persuades us in a mysterious ways, that this is really the Word of God. 
and without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Eyes that are blinded by sin can never see it. Ears that are deafened to the truth will never hear it. Darkened hearts will never respond to it. But when we hear God speaking in his word, then we are persuaded in a way that produces such a divine invasion crisis that the other voices that have filled our heads and thoughts and lips somehow are subdued. We could all tell stories of that, couldn't we? I certainly could. The divine voice silences our voice and convinces us that the Bible's claims are true. Well, look at what he says. It's profitable for all these things. Teaching, so that you might know the right way. Reproof, so that it can tell us when we've gone the wrong way. Correction, to get us right back on track. And training, to keep us on track. And why? So that the man of God particularly here, Timothy, in his role in pastoral ministry, but so that the man of God, the woman of God, the people of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Vitally important that Timothy continues in this way. You remember the coronation, don't you? I don't, I was too wee, but I was alive 70 years ago. We present you, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here, your majesty, is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Either they are or they're not. Timothy, continue. A brief prayer. Actually, I'm going to use Calvin's prayer, which he often used after preaching. We call upon you, our good God and Father, beseeching you since all the fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, in your mercy to enlighten us by the Holy Spirit in the true understanding of the word. Teach us by your word to place our trust in you and to serve and honor you as we ought so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbors by our good example. May we render to you, O God, the love and obedience which children owe to their parents, since it has pleased you graciously to receive us in Christ as your children. In Christ's name, amen.